Good afternoon, New Mexico, and thank you all for joining us. Um, I'm about to give you the case update, and if those for all of us who pay attention to that every day, um, I think that you will find today's numbers to be uh, not just alarming, shocking, and as a result, uh, in addition to many announcements that we will reiterate during today's press conference. Today, we're reporting 672 cases. Uh, we now have a positivity rate in the state that is 8.1%. These are the highest levels we've been at and uh, in, in a very bad way. So New Mexico has been leading the Southwest in low positivity rates, controllable transmission of COVID-19. And now we're in those columns where we're leading the country, if not in the number one position, nearing it for uncontrollable spread. Uh, that's 34,958 total. Uh, this should be as alarming to individuals in the state. This is what, in addition to saving lives, which again, was always has to be our focus for every emergency. But we have 150 people currently in the hospital, 21 on ventilators, and look at this number, 74% increase just this month. Hospitalizations have a two-part aspect here. One, people need hospital care for all sorts of reasons, and those individuals are getting hospital care today in New Mexico. But we're seeing an increase in hospitalizations related to COVID and the number of folks on ventilators um, uh, increase, 21. So we're up uh, again on ventilators. And what does that mean? It means that we reduce capacity for all the other hospital care that we need in the state. And as COVID transmissions increase and they get to populations who are more likely to need individuals with chronic uh, care conditions and pre-existing conditions go to the hospital, it means that we start pushing out everybody else uh, that would need care like moms giving birth. And at some point you don't have enough hospital beds to meet the demand every day for individuals who need hospital care and assistance with COVID. So uh, this is exactly where we don't want to be, and unfortunately we are. Uh, one new death announced today, uh, they're all horrible. We mourn everyone, um, and I uh, find myself every day uh, uh, telling New Mexico families how sorry we are for their losses and how we are, they are all in every New Mexican's thoughts and prayers, but we can do more than just provide condolences. And we have an obligation to do more. And Dr. Grace will talk more about this in a minute, but we're gonna see that increase, right? First you see transmission, then you see hospitalizations, critical care ventilators. And then unfortunately, we have to cope with the very real fact that more New Mexicans will die. We've done over a million tests statewide. So 1,027,392 tests conducted statewide. Um, and I also want to highlight the first New Mexico flu case was reported today. And I want folks to find, get your flu vaccine. I'm getting mine next week. I need everyone to get their flu shot. If you want to know where the, new, the, the nearest location to get a flu vaccine is in your community, go to togethernm.org slash flu, togethernm.org slash flu. Uh, please do this. 
that remember that flu uh, is another reason people will go to the hospital and get really sick. And we want to make sure that we're mitigating and lowering transmission and protecting New Mexicans to the highest degree possible. This is the most serious emergency that New Mexico has ever faced. The health risks are extreme for every single New Mexican. It's not just COVID. It's a system for everyone's healthcare needs. Is, uh, we are moving so rapidly in the wrong direction. We know that some New Mexicans are not gonna get the care that they need. Uh, and this is untenable and it's untenable for our healthcare providers that are counting on us to not only keep them safe, but to put them in a position where they can manage the care that they're dedicated at providing. Now, in just three weeks to show you how quickly this can happen, our rolling average of new cases uh, and our positivity rate and hospitalization. So all these three measures that you always see on the gating criteria that you see again, they have doubled and more. So remember those doubling rates early in our conversations that are high risk data points that you look for that mean uncontrollable spread. We are beyond those data points for me, we're beyond those triggers. So what does it really mean? It means the virus is now everywhere. It's prevalent. Uh, it is at the grocery store. It is at the gas station. It is at your school. It is at the hospital. Uh, it, is, it is in your nursing home. It is in corrections. It is everywhere. And that means that we have to stop going those places if we're going to get this under control because we're bringing it home to our families who risk severe illness and death. We have an obligation. Um, if I can't uh, uh, and any policymaker anywhere in the country can't convince you to protect your healthcare workers and your healthcare system, uh, protect your family members and your neighbors and your loved ones. Uh, we must crush the virus again. We have to. Um, and the truth is that now we're past the point of just prevention, right? So mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing are in fact effective. They are. And we've shown that when we really do well in those three areas, we can manage the virus pretty well when we're also incredibly courteous and conscientious about our mobility, about what we're doing, where we're going, and what kind of risks that those activities pose. And the truth is, we aren't doing that anymore. You know, we let up. Um, we, we succumb to the national rhetoric that it's not a bad, as bad of a problem, that there are plenty of great treatments, that most of us won't get sick, that it's not going to spread as fast, that it's just like a cold. All of that is nonsense. It is absolutely not true. And we can't fall prey to that non-fact-based, non-evidence-based rhetoric that's part of a political process for some, uh, and uh, certainly we're in that time zone uh, in, uh, in the country right now, but it's also just these conspiracy theories that have nothing to do with fact. This is a deadly virus. It is living among us. We have to control it. It is looking for opportunities to spread, and in New Mexico right now, it has found it. And the wildfire, as I've written here on this slide, it is raging. Uh, and the truth is, even though with these numbers, I know that in the weeks ahead, we're going to have more people die and more hospitalizations. And this is the real risk point. If we don't do what we need to do, then there is only one option 
when a country like New Zealand gets even a small outbreak, eight, it closed down that whole region. We know that closing things is a vehicle because people have to stay home. I'm gonna stay home, I'm volunteering to do that because I know that it keeps other New Mexicans safe. So I'm gonna ask folks to first recommit to your own personal responsibilities and social contracts with everyone in New Mexico. So we all know what to do. I'm gonna reiterate it, make sure that we're all on the same page, stay home. If you don't have to go out, don't go out. Um, if an errand is not required, food, life, safety, school, work, don't do it. Because it's that errand, that traveling, that's moving the virus around. Um, we want you to shop and we want you to support your local businesses. You know, they, they need us, but they need us to prevent the spread of the virus. Their workers are at risk. Their livelihoods are at risk. And I'm going to give some examples of those. Do it online. Shop from home. I know it's not readily available in every community, in every circumstance. But for those of us who can, we need and must. We must do that right now. Second, if you got to go out, you must wear a mask all the time. Um, I'm seeing uh, and people are reporting uh, that we are that mask wearing is getting more and more relaxed in the state. And for those of us who are not in a profession that requires, uh, we're not in a clean room as an engineer, we're not in a hospital environment where we're wearing surgical masks or respirator type masks, you know, we're not accustomed to having to wear face coverings. And I'm with every other uh, person on the globe and in America that feels constricted by that. It is an easy commitment to make if it stops the spread in large part, not entirely, but the mitigation responses and outcomes from wearing masks are incredible. Remember I said if we could get to 80%, we really thought that would help us mitigate risk. We're probably below 50%. We need to now to slow it up, we gotta get to as close to 100% mask wearing when we're out and about as possible. And families, when you have a choice and you have to run an errand, please try not to send the whole family. And I know people are feeling closed in and isolated. The virus is looking for those opportunities. And we're going to talk about the amount of spread in young people because it's pretty incredible, including our youngsters who are school age. And third, this is incredibly important. You have to avoid groups of people. You have to avoid to the highest degree indoor activities. And we got to get back to washing our hands 20 seconds, hot water and soap, and absolutely hand sanitizer in addition to that is effective. If we don't stay home, the mitigation efforts probably aren't going to be enough. So it's going to take commitment from every single New Mexican. So I want you to think about your COVID safe triangle. Work, self-care, errand. Self-care could be childcare, uh, could be medical appointment, could be physical fitness, um, uh, could be mental health uh, activity, uh, but and an errand, groceries. Try to stay to three. For those of us who can do two, for those of us who can do one, do that. One place outside of the home. The less that you do, but no more than the triangle, is critical to returning to a place where New Mexico is managing COVID and reducing spread.
I want to give you a sense about the rapid responses. For those of you who are just joining us, a rapid response is where when we have a positive case, we do the epidemiological work and the contact tracing, uh, we ask you where your place of employment is. And we work together to notify uh, that place of employment, or there's now a requirement that places of employment right have to tell us if they have a positive case. And then we come out, uh, we test everyone. If that's warranted, it depends on exactly uh, the kind of employment and how close together people were, whether it's indoor, outdoor, or all of those kinds of things. But for purposes of this example, 100% everyone gets tested. And these businesses are closed down often for a day. Many of them have to make their own decisions to stay closed for two weeks because everyone is infected or nearly everyone. And everyone's got to be quarantined for the two weeks. This means businesses open, close, open, close, open, close. You know what's bad for the economy? businesses that can't stay open. This is a huge problem. Last week, 611 rapid responses. And that's an increase from 419 the week before. And the other huge issue here is uh, businesses and organizations rely on us to bring the health experts to them, to bring testing to them, to make sure people are as safe as possible, that we can get the business sanitized, do all the things that we need to do. We don't have the bandwidth in state government to continue with this exponential increase, which means businesses will have to stay closed longer until we can get to you. And this is also incredibly problematic for our economic recovery. Here are the industries where we are seeing uh, the fastest growing increases. And you'll see the, the statement above that. This, this, we have a 60% increase in rapid responses. I mean, these are huge numbers. Restaurants, 120% increase week over week. Are restaurants a problem in and of themselves? People going to restaurants, so the answer is no but they are high risk, particularly for the indoor dining, just by the nature of that activity. That means we have to do a better job. Otherwise we're putting those workers at risk and that's a huge problem. But look at retail and wholesale, a 98% increase week over week. Instead of getting our necessities, this has become part of our socialization and activity and it is exactly the wrong thing in a COVID world. Here are the top five number of rapid responses last week. Healthcare, retail, education, restaurants, construction. And if you look in here, most of these would be identified, at least half, three of them, as essential workplaces, which means we're putting our essential workers out of commission by virtue of having this kind of uncontrollable spread. So this is what we're doing. Food and drink establishments serving alcohol must close at 10. We are seeing that these establishments, people are staying far too long and engaging in activity that is not safe in a COVID world. Maximum occupancy for hotels or placing of lodging is reduced. Visitors and residents from high-risk states, and if you're looking at what's going around the country, that's now nearly every state, have to quarantine for 14 days um, in addition to the length of stay in New Mexico. Uh, the Department of Health can and will enforce mandatory quarantine for violators. 
High-risk states include, frankly, all of our neighboring states, every single one. El Paso, as an example, reported an unfathomable 717 cases today in El Paso alone with 438 people hospitalized. Please do not go to El Paso. And this notion that our border counties have access to healthcare in other states, states are now, including Texas, sounding the alarm that they're at a place where they won't be able to meet the needs of other states' healthcare uh, or hospital beds. We are in a national crisis related to spread. And New Mexico, unfortunately, is the top of that list. And we're going back to gatherings of just five people or less. The truth is, this is high risk. Stay home. If everyone stays home, and if you stay where you can't stay home, in your triangle, and if you wear your masks, and if we stop these family gatherings, these mitigation efforts, so say our modeling team and experts, over a period of time are enough. But given the activity and the, and the mobility and the lack of public health efforts like mask wearing, the very real fear here is that if we can't marry these new restrictions with the highest level of personal commitment, they will not be enough. And we will know in short order. And if they're not enough, then as a state, we have to be prepared to make tough decisions. And what I want everyone to know is I'm prepared to make another really tough decision. I don't want to make that decision. I want us to show that collectively we can use these tools and attack the virus right back and stop it from spreading in the way in which it currently is unabated statewide in every community nearly in every place in every community. I just want you to know it is out of control if we don't get it right, I have to restrict high-risk activities. That's the only other tool I have in my toolbox. It will save lives and it will prevent us from overwhelming our hospital and healthcare system. These are those two things that we have to be always mindful of. And I want folks to know that you saw the numbers. So of course you can reach this conclusion on your own, right? That's indoor dining, retail stores, businesses, nonprofits, all shapes and sizes. That middle statement is exactly where we don't want to be. And then I want to end with this. None of this is fair. This is a crisis level, never seen before, horrific situation in this pandemic. And it just means that we have to do and work harder at crushing it. And the other thing I want to just be clear about is this is a marathon. Public health experts around the country today said, you know, people are, are waiting for us to release a vaccine, you know, this next week or before the election. And they're now talking about April and May. And by the time that got distributed and we get the uh, approvals for treatment modalities that can be better, it, we're in it for another nine months or longer. It is a marathon. I need everyone to stop at that marathon stand. This is a uh, not literally, figuratively, take that sip of water and just keep doing the work that you're doing. Because if we don't, 
we don't even get to have conversations about schools and kids, right? That, that comes off the table because there's no way to do it. So uh, I appreciate that uh, you gave me a chance to really uh, hit hard um, how uh, drastic things have become and how we must work immediately to slow it up and to bend, crush, flatten the curve. Dr. Grace, you're up. And thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. I'm just going to bring up uh, my first slide and uh, appreciate everybody's attention here. This is a serious time for the state of New Mexico. We, uh, you can see the curve here, and it really is dwarfing previous curves. Number one, number two, uh, this is, there's a six day lag here. So we're at 404, but all of our case counts pretty much over the past uh, six days, uh, five days have been higher than that except one. And so that's definitely gonna go up. And then the last thing uh, to remind everybody is we're like a car on ice. You know, we can slam on the brakes today and I hope we will slam on the brakes as individual citizens and families and communities in terms of COVID safe practices, but it's going to take two weeks for the car to stop because people who are already infected will develop symptoms and uh, that may spread a little bit more even if we tighten things up substantially. So this is really a serious issue. You can see the state curve is the dotted blue line here and all the other counties. Uh, our metro region of, uh, around Bernalillo County now has passed the Southeast uh, for the most number of cases. Of course, a lot more people live in that metro region than in the Southeast. So that does make sense, but very concerning uh, to see this spread. This is the slide that now is keeping me awake every night. And it's, what this is, is just, it's sort of the same curves <clears throat> that I just showed you, but rather than being broken down by region, it's broken down by age group. And you can see the general shape of our epidemiologic curve that we show every week here. But there's only one thing you need to notice that I noticed right away. And that is you can pick any line on here, zero to four, five to 17, uh, you know, 18 to 34, 35 to 64, or 65 and over. Any one of those lines and where we were uh, actually eight days ago for each of those age groups is higher than we've been ever. And so, and I get really worried when I see that 65 and older group going up as rapidly as it is, because those are the folks who have the highest hospitalization rates and we're already struggling with full hospitals as I'm about to tell you more about. I think another reminder is we, we can sort of get the sense or believe that uh, COVID is just like the common cold. Of course, we have no idea whether that's a case. We don't have one and two and three year data about long-term health effects of coronavirus. I know I'm often accused of trying to scare people when I show them data. And you know, in my mind, I'm just showing you the data. Uh, I, I, I'm not really wanting people to be afraid. I'm, want, I'm wanting everyone to be motivated to take action, to double down, to be safe. 26 athletes at Ohio State University who had COVID positive tests June through August, uh, 12 of them had some abnormality on scans of their hearts. <clears throat> now, you know, some of those other studies have shown that those abnormalities go away in about half the people. They persist about in about half the people for four months. 
and it's going to take another year to year or two to know what those consequences are. Uh, Long-term neurologic symptoms. We've talked about these before, not just stroke and other things that happen at a much higher risk. The most common persistent symptoms in coronavirus infections are headache and vertigo, that sense of the room spinning. People have had major complications, encephalitis, uh, infection, inflammation of the whole brain, seizures, giant mood swings, and and now people are reporting brain fog. We don't know exactly what that is and what it means, but it seems fairly consistent. We're waiting for more research, but there is a paper now that's describing and, 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 and enumerating the symptoms and limitations that these folks have. Again, we don't have two or three years worth of data. We just don't know. And then recently, a 16-month-old uh, COVID uh, positive patient you know, had actually new onset diabetes mellitus, Another, another case uh, earlier this year where a, a young child developed type 1 diabetes on insulin for the rest of their lives in all likelihood, as those cells that make insulin in the body are destroyed due to an autoimmune reaction, also uh, blood problems. Again, this is not uh, an attempt to uh, scare people. It's really just to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. And there's a lot that we don't know about the long-term effects of COVID. I'm not one of those people who thinks it'd be fine for me or anyone in my family to get COVID because it's just a mild disease. Uh, another thing, the governor encouraged all of us to get flu shots. She showed you how to get those uh, um, information about flu shots near, view, near you. We've been proud of the fact that we were ahead. This is this year, uh, 2020, in terms of getting our vaccinations in the state. We were ahead of last year, uh, which, which was the last flu season, uh, end of 2019, first three months of 2020. And now we're falling behind. And this is not a good time to fall behind. Uh, we're 13% behind last year. And especially, especially now that we have had our first recorded case of uh, the 2000 version of influenza B in the state. So that means that's there as well. Uh, we don't know if you can get COVID and flu at the same time. There are a few reports of that. Uh, but, you know, all the things we're recommending for uh, <clears throat> safe practices like masking, staying at home, keeping your distance, washing your hands, they work for both. Uh, gating criteria, uh, proceeding as one would expect, our spread of COVID, both of those metrics are now uh, basically off the charts with our case uh, Again, that's a six-day lag there. You heard the case count today of 672. Um, that's, that's more than twice the peak we had uh, uh, before in this measure in the previous peak in the summer. And testing still holding up. I want to address people say, you know, we're doing more testing. That's why we're seeing more cases. You know, the increase in testing that we're doing from 5,000 to 7,600, uh, 7,700 a day, mathematically, would result in about 40 to 50 more positive cases. This is just science and math. And we're seeing, what are we seeing? Uh, 300, 400 more. So this is not about more testing. This is about the rapid spread of the disease. And our positivity rate has now crept above 5%. The, thing, the number we've been most proud of as a state, the number that we've often led the nation at, and now we're uh, rapidly degrading. Uh, I know that, uh, for example, today, at today, New Mexico ties with Michigan uh, for the number two spot in the rate of increase in cases across the United States. 
We're at 39%. Missouri is at 45. Interestingly, I've spent my entire life uh, living in New Mexico and Michigan, uh, so, and both of which are tied for number two. For number four, we're followed by South Dakota at 38%, Illinois at 37%. The governor already mentioned this is a nationwide problem. And while uh, somehow our contact tracers have held out last week in keeping up with the case volumes, that's going to be a significant challenge this week. And when you get to 672 cases, it is going to be very, very difficult. Last, and I'm going to talk more about this, our hospitals are now uh, getting quite full. Our uh, <clears throat> ICU beds, as was mentioned in Albuquerque, and many of you know, are full uh, with a university over 100% full in ICUs, uh, 120 reported in the paper this morning. Presbyterian at very near 100% level, says a few open beds. Vin, uh, Krista St. Vincent's, who is also in that hub network, a few. Uh, southeastern part of the state, ICU beds uh, full or over full as well. And I think the governor made a really important point that I'm going to talk uh, more about in a minute about that we're all, we all actually use hospitals. This is the map of where we were at, uh, you know, in the previous period, you could see everything was red and green. Uh, and now you can see the whole, this whole part of the state has turned orange. Red means that our case counts and our test positivity rate are out of range. Green means they're both good. And orange means that our number of cases are high, but we're keeping up with testing. But it isn't the test positivity rate that infects other people with COVID. It's the, the, the number of cases, the number of people walking around. So significant shift over the past two weeks uh, that is very, very worrisome to me. Hospital beds. Uh, so on the, on the right, I've got a little graph here. The blue is the average number of hospital beds per 10,000 people. You don't have to do the math on these. You can just sort of relate to the proportions. Alabama is number one in the United States right now. They've got uh, almost four beds per 10,000 people. National average is about 2.7. Uh, Colorado, one of our neighbors, over three. Texas, one of our neighbors, 2.6, 2.7. Arizona, one of our neighbors, 2.6. New Mexico, 2.35. And actually we're the third lowest hospital capacity per person in the state. Texas has told us they will no longer be accepting transfers from New Mexico. There's a lot of traffic. We've talked about it in press conferences before. People who live in border towns being transferred for their care to Texas uh, or going to Texas hospitals for their care. And also we have that reciprocal people from Texas and also Arizona coming to New Mexico for their care. But now that route to expand is closed. Other states are now transferring. North Dakota was one I read about last week. They're folks out of, out of state, and we are just seeing huge increases in volume uh, in, in hospital capacity, almost doubling in the Southeast in the past four weeks as well. And remember when we used to talk about alternative care sites and field hospitals, we still have that equipment. We're still thinking about how to best use it. But in Wisconsin, they have open field hospitals now because they've overwhelmed uh, uh, their hospitals with their number of cases. And you, if you recall, I did not mention them in the top five in terms of rate of growth, growth of cases this week. So 
I know this is when everyone thinks I'm almost done. I do have a few more things to say than I usually do on this slide, but the virus remains ready to infect anybody uh, and, and that comes in contact with it. The virus spreads when two people are sharing the same space and breathing the same air. It's as simple as that. 99.5% of the time, that is how the virus spreads. We all have to really recommit uh, to fighting this virus for another year. You know, staying at home, the governor mentioned it multiple times, that's really important. Uh, you know, large gatherings, you know, 222 people last week reported to con uh, case investigators that they'd been in a gathering of more than 10 people uh, in the 14 days before they got uh, coronavirus. Now that's a problem. Uh, you know, we, we usually pass over washing hands and cleaning surfaces. Great paper came out last week. COVID lasts about nine hours on human skin, nine hours. Uh, it lasts, influenza virus in contrast, lasts a little less than two, and they both are killed within 15 seconds with hand sanitizer. If you have dust on your hand sanitizer, get it out from under the sink, put it on the counter, clean your hands frequently before meal preparation, before eating, after meals, wash your hands, be hygienic, be safe. Everybody needs to wear face coverings in public. Governor asked our modeling team last week, how much of a difference would these things make? If, we, if everyone were to wear a mask, what kind of difference would we see? And over a four week period, we could reduce our number of daily cases by up to 50% if everyone participated in COVID safe practices. And uh, lastly, just maintaining social distancing, a minimum of six feet. That's particularly true indoors. You know, any indoor situation without a mask is a dangerous situation. Uh, maybe you want to do that and you've decided to do it with your family. It's been brought to my attention that people assume that, hey, if I'm with my family, I don't wear a mask. I put my mask on every time I leave home. We go visit relatives. We take off our mask. We leave it in the car and we go in and spend time with them. That's not a good idea. Keep that mask on anytime you're outside your home, anytime. Uh, and I think with that, Governor, I'm going to turn it back to you. I think, no, I would agree. Nobody likes the situation we're in, but this no, is a long-term situation. This photo um, that you've yes. got on the screen is a local establishment, if I'm not incorrect. And just, just to point this out, none of this behavior is allowed. You can't be standing uh, at a bar. You can't be in that close contact. You have to be six feet uh, socially distanced. Those are the current rules. So this is on there because people aren't helping businesses abide by the public health orders and the rules. And the rules make a difference. They keep our businesses open. They keep our New Mexicans safe. They protect the healthcare workers. And here's an example. Blake's Lauderburger uh, expanded, thank you, Blake's, to Roswell. Um, and after being open a day, they had to close. Uh, and then they got tested and did everything they needed to do. We, you know, sanitized, opened, everyone infected. They're still closed nine days later. Businesses can't expand. They can't stay open. They can't protect their employees. It is untenable. They need stability, predictability, right? That slow, that steady. It is not this. 
And this notion that we're all invincible is wrong. And I want to point out before we go to questions, and I'm ready, 50% of our cases in the last two weeks, 50% of them were between the ages of 10 and 39. And so, you know, we're seeing this driving by young people who are in a variety of circumstances, college and uh, hybrid learning and going out to restaurants. Uh, and it is just creating this natural environment for uh, this serious um, state on fire set of consequences. And I appreciate that you have that photo. I want people to see what we see every day. Uh, and again, we uh, identify the right measures we model it so I can tell you that within a certain period of time, about two weeks, you can see the trends shift in the opposite direction. But as soon as they shift, then people stop practicing those public health measures. Um, and um, uh, one thing that we didn't talk about, and I know there'll be a question, and if there wasn't, now there will be. Look, we, we need to step up the state's enforcement. And uh, that's not an area that anybody wants to do. We want to be doing this as a state collective. You know, we are, we are strong, resilient, proud, effective, smart, engaged. Uh, and this is a state that's known for taking care of each other. We just are. It's one of the reasons people like to come to New Mexico. It's beautiful and move here. But this is not an indication that we're taking that seriously in COVID. And I just, I understand we're tired. We're exhausted by a pandemic that has very little real, you know, outside of I have to stay in a bubble and isolated in my home. Um, effective measures. If you're not frustrated by this, um, then you're probably out too much. This is hard. Uh, we said it was gonna be hard when we sounded the alarm in our first case. We showed that if you stay at home and you have a stay at home order and you shut everything down, you can manage the virus. And we were working together really well. We had a couple of, you know, problems, but really well overall by introducing risk. And then it just all fell apart. And I have to believe that we got tired. That we're incredibly physically and emotionally fatigued by this pandemic, fair. But now we got to overcome it. And that we are all seeing nationally that fewer and fewer people really are paying attention to the facts, pay attention to the facts. It is a deadly, highly contagious virus. Last year, we lost 197 people to flu. There's no comparison. And it overwhelms every other aspect of our daily lives, but most importantly, our ability to have access to healthcare. So New Mexico, we're gonna do it. You're gonna show us all that these mitigation efforts are enough but if they are not enough, then again, we keep narrowing the decisions uh, that are available to, uh, to myself and uh, to my team, and we are prepared to make tough decisions. Um, but today, you've seen that we're gonna ratchet back a little bit about how we do things, ask for your support, cooperation, and dedication here, um, and go after this virus with a vengeance. That's how it treats us. That's how we have to treat it right back. All right, Nora, we're ready for questions. Thank you, Governor. And I'll, I see lots of hands up. Perfect. So we will start with Jens Gould from the Santa Fe New Mexican. And Jens, you are 
Unmuted, go right ahead. Thanks, Nora. Hi, Governor. Hi, Secretary. Um, you, so you've said today that this is the most serious emergency that New Mexico has ever faced, um, and case numbers are higher now than they were when the indoor dining uh, and retail were completely closed. So I'm, I'm wondering why aren't you already taking measures that would be proportional to the measures back then? Um, and I don't know if you can draw that direct sort of proportional um, line, but if we were going by the numbers, it would seem that you would have already announced today that we'd be going back to something more restrictive, like shutting down uh, indoor dining and retail. Well, two reasons, and that is a very um, um, effective question, frankly. I'm, I'm glad that you raised it. Um, I wouldn't just do these mitigation efforts if the modeling team set, didn't say, look, if you can get to the Mexicans and you do these things, we reduce tourism, right? Out-of-state travel is a big issue for the state. And so we reduce lodging and we provide a limitation on when you can be serving alcohol and food together. That, that those are uh, clearly follow the data points about where we're seeing increases in high-risk behavior family gathering, so limit that number again and really hit that hard, They're, they can be enough. And what we've been talking about, so here's the other side of the equation. If this is a year from now, maybe nine months from now, are, are, are we prepared? Is every state prepared? Are we gonna close every six weeks? Are we gonna not open schools for another year? Are we going to um, have a stay at home order that lasts till next September? And so what I've said is that based on the modeling and the data, that I believe that this state can manage COVID in a steady, slow, predictable fashion. And I want to believe that we just had Labor Day, beautiful fall weather, kids back to school and perfect storm, people did not follow the prevention aspects as we introduced a little more risk. And that's why I've decided that because I want us to show and I wanna support New Mexico's economy that we can do it. But if we can't, and it has to be quick, we can see the modality, we can see what's coming in in complaints, we can track the rapid responses. So in terms of seeing the numbers five weeks out, I can see many more indicators much quicker Then I'll make that really tough decision. Um, but that's why we didn't make it today. You are correct. The numbers warrant that decision. But I believe, and again, the public health experts, I really wanna make sure I've done that. They look at if we do everything we're asking you to do, the new public health order tomorrow and, and going back to the basics, the numbers will gradually come down. We likely won't overwhelm the healthcare system. We're going to stretch it. Um, and that's unfair to them. We're going to really stretch it. And shame on us. Stretch it. And then we stabilize. But if that doesn't, if I don't see based on, again, the data, that turning around, I won't have any other choice. And I really appreciate that you're pointing that out, that the numbers are higher now than they were by far when we made shutdown decisions or rollback decisions. Dr. Scrace. Yeah, Jen's a great question. And I appreciate the chance to talk a little bit more about our testing and contact tracing strategy. The first time we shut down, even though we were ahead of the rest of the country, 
We were just getting testing up. We were really proud of doing 2,000 tests a day, contact tracing. It wasn't exactly in its infancy. We had an established process, but you know, since then, we tripled or almost quadrupled the number of tests we do a day, and our contact tracing capacity has dramatically expanded. Now, not enough to handle 677 cases a day, but we're in a very, very different place. If we can identify every positive case, get that test result back quickly, which we're doing pretty well on right now, and get a hold of that person and, and isolate them in their, in their home or put them in a hotel if they don't have a safe place to isolate, if we can determine who their contacts were, contact them, call them, sorry, and get them to quarantine for 14 days, that is a huge weapon against the spread of coronavirus and something we were in a much, much better position than we were before. Nonetheless, uh, you know, 677 cases scares me as well. And, and can I be a bit of a, a realist given the numbers? Because Jen's spot on. He's looking at the numbers. That this would also be an indication that even though we're doing the stuff that we can do better today than we could early on, I think these numbers also indicate that people don't stay home. That right. when we ask you to self-isolate, that you don't. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you know, when we ask people uh, if they've been isolating and, and, and where have they been, you know, they tell us they're not. I had to go to work. We tell them you can't go to work. So a lot of things about people's behavior must change. And even with these additional science-based resources, to deal with outbreaks and to keep positive cases isolated and away from the general population. If we don't lower the numbers, again, none of that would be enough. And, uh, and I'm hoping today uh, we convince New Mexicans that we still can do this together. Thanks, Jens. Thank you, Governor and Dr. Scrace. Next, we'll go to Dan Boyd with the Albuquerque Journal. Dan, you are... There we go. Dan, you're unmuted. Go right ahead. Great. Uh, thanks so much, Nora. Uh, thank you, Governor and uh, Secretary Scrace. Uh, Governor, wanted to follow up. You, you talked about more enforcement measures, including uh, the travel quarantine order, and wanted to see if you could kind of elaborate on exactly how that will be done and, and how that will be kind of enforced. Uh, secondly, kind of given the recent spike in cases, wanted to see if either of you could kind of address how many of those cases are uh, individuals with symptoms versus kind of asymptomatic individuals. Thanks. You got it. I'm going to uh, pitch to Dr. Scrace the, the breakout. I actually don't have that breakout. I can talk about it in terms of uh, uh, folks uh, if I look back at the testing. So I'm hoping that Dr. Scrace can find that in his uh, handy data set there. Um, uh, but uh, the, the enforcement issues, so, uh, and I, I know folks get frustrated with me about being too verbose, so I'm gonna really work hard at this. And I appreciate again, that constructive feedback. You know, the way that the public health orders work is that we have the ability in the state to enforce them using two uh, efforts, right? The criminal side, which is a, a misdemeanor typically, and for not mask wearing, for example, up to a hundred dollar fine. Yeah, if you have repeat violations, it can turn into for misdemeanors can turn into a a felony, and those fines can escalate. But also on the civil side, uh, so we can issue a, an individual fine. There's no criminal penalty associated with that. That would be inappropriate for the state government outside of its 
police and public safety effort to try to do that. Uh, and we can also levy fines. And given that we have public safety officers all over the state, uh, we, had, uh, the, we made an early decision that we would focus with enforcement there. And then the folks who do the rest of that kind of public health enforcement work, largely but not entirely, the environment department as an example and a partner, you know, they would do it through their OSHA reviews and their rapid responses. Given the number of rapid responses, which are really intended to safeguard employees to reduce the spread of infection and to isolate those workers, uh, we realize that we've got other regulators, overseers, folks who have training and the ability to issue a um, civil citation, um, and we aren't using those individuals. And so think about, uh, you know, game and fish. Think about uh, uh, the gaming commission regulators. Think about construction industries uh, as regulators. All those kinds of folks. Think about a different team in the Department of Health, a different team in regulation and licensing. So these are individuals and in the course of their regular work can expand and enforce these public health orders. Uh, because that is an area that New Mexicans have asked us. I'm doing everything right as a New Mexican. Someone will write. I, I, I haven't gone to any family gatherings. I haven't hosted any. I haven't had family dinners. I'm, I'm in, I was already in your proposed triangle. I wear a mask religiously. I'm, I'm doing everything I know to do. And I, my neighbor did this, or my coworker did that, or my favorite um, place to shop is doing this. And nothing happens. And so, you know, I'm really frustrated that the state isn't keeping me safe by doing more on the enforcement. And we do have bad actors who are purposely not following the public health orders, who have had huge gatherings uh, in their places of employment or families, you know, who have had large backyard events and weddings. And it is a significant problem. And so we're gonna try this effort, including really paying attention to lodging, making sure that we're doing that enforcement, uh, looking at uh, visitors, talking to folks that we're really gonna do it. Um, and will we get to everyone? Impossible. The only way that we make this work is that people's behaviors change after today. Uh, that's not to say that a police officer can't also give you a cease and desist and enforce. They still can and they still will, but they also have a pretty significant you know, day job we all do. And so this is another leveraging tool. It's very focused. It's focused at the places where we're seeing the most violations. So we think we get a bigger bang for our buck in that regard and we're gonna focus in that way. Yeah, and Dan, uh, just on the percent of people who have COVID that are asymptomatic, there's two parts to this question. Uh, part one is the subset of people that we complete a case investigation on, and it, it you know those people who have a positive test, they're contacted by a case investigator, and that's had an interesting trend at the uh, very beginning of the uh, pandemic uh, when there was a preponderance of people getting tested who were symptomatic. About 90% of people had symptoms, 10% were asymptomatic. And then that gradually rose as there was more awareness and uh, you know we're doing an awful lot of testing. We got up to about 50%, just a little below 50% in uh, late June when that case curve was rising. And, uh, and then in August, right around the end of August, early September, we were running in the low 30% of people asymptomatic. I don't have the most current number, we, we check that, uh, 
on an ad hoc basis rather than trending it daily or weekly. So I can get that. And then part two of the question is that in our model, we have built in assumptions based on for every one person who we know has coronavirus with a positive test, how many other people are there out there who also, uh, based on data uh, and trends that we're seeing and mortality rates and hospitalization rates, how many other people have COVID? And that's a ratio of 3.4 to one. So 3.4 people out there that we don't know about to every one that we do. And our assumption is that those, that 3.4 to one, the 3.4 group is much less likely to have symptoms. Because uh, if they were really sick, at least now they would be out, presumably the vast majority of them getting tested. So uh, there's the ratio number, and then there's the actual number we get from contact tracing. And I'll, I'll track that down and we'll get back to you with what our latest is, or I'll have it next week. Thanks. Thank you, Governor and Drs. Grace. Next, we'll go to Brandon Evans with KOAT. Brandon, you are unmuted. Go right ahead. Thank you, everybody. Uh, wanted to see what these new numbers meant for University of New Mexico with a football game at the end of the month, the basketball team, basically just those two sports that make the most money for UNM, is there any chance that they're going to be able to have games and play games in the state? And where are we with the rapid testing? Uh, testing, the, the research you guys were going to do on the rapid testing, because last time you said you did not feel it was as effective and the numbers had shown it. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. I'm gonna to go to Dr. Grace about the Abbott Bionax. Uh, tests and where we're thinking we can use them. So thank you for reminding us that uh, we were doing that and the feds want us to uh, update our plan about using those. Uh, so I'll have Dr. Grace do that. But on UNM, look, I, I have to believe, I do believe that we have actual evidence that shows that when New Mexicans buckle down and we do everything that we're being asked of each other, a social contract, we stay the course, I make tough decisions. I made a, a whole new set again today, uh, or a couple of days ago, effective tomorrow, uh, that the numbers come down. They come down fairly dramatically. Uh, it's steady and we um, can hold it. Um, so I know that, that, that we, can, we can do that. And is that gonna be soon enough for a game coming up? I, I can't answer that. Uh, today, I would say no. Uh, and I will tell you that I think UNM is seeing that the positivity rates are giving them some challenges, even with their very aggressive, and they're doing it, testing, isolating, keeping everyone in a tight social contract. That means they're all in a pod. Um, and uh, given uh, the numbers, I think folks should expect that UNM is prepared to publicly announce that they're seeing trouble uh, in their, um, uh, with their athletes and coaches. Uh, and that's an indication that when the virus is more prevalent, it's just more prevalent. And if you've got infections in the teams, they can't play. It's, they can't play. So that puts folks out for at least two weeks. Um, I refuse to not have optimism about our ability to push this virus back. But too early to tell, but the, the signs are not good. And it is finding itself into schools 
and into sports. It absolutely is. And UNM is not an exception. And early on, we saw it take hold in practices at state. Uh, it gets in, it stays in. We're seeing that happen at schools all across the country. And we're seeing it happen in all sports, even though we've shown um, you know, some of the professional leagues, as we're all aware, have really done a great job at finding their own mitigation efforts that have worked in large part but there's no such thing as 100% with this virus until you can get a vaccine against it. Dr. Scrace? Yeah, uh, the Mountain West League did come up with a proposal for uh, an antigen testing uh, three times a week. We are still waiting for UNM to provide data that uh, on the machines they plan to use. Uh, they were doing that through Quest Lab and there, there's an EUA that, to my knowledge, has not yet come out. So we have not approved them to use that, they're doing three times a week PCR, and uh, uh, we're requiring that. I, I probably should say just a couple things about antigen testing or, or rapid, particularly rapid testing. Since we're on that topic, there was an article in the paper about 5,000 of those tests that were done earlier this week. Uh, Nevada uh, discovered that in their nursing homes, they decided prospectively to retest everybody who had a rapid antigen test with who had a positive rapid antigen test to retest them with a PCR. And the article in the paper today reported 5,000 tests done in Albuquerque with the same exact device, uh, the BD Verator, that was one of the ones investigated in Nevada. In Nevada, there were 30 positive tests in nursing home residents. And of those, half of them, 15, were confirmed as being positive by the PCR testing and the other half were not. So that's exactly the same odds. The test provides you as exactly the same amount of information as a coin flip. And don't forget that if you think a nursing home patient is positive, the first thing you do is move them from the COVID negative hall into the COVID positive hall of the nursing home, which is not okay if it's a 50-50 chance. And so we are really, really concerned about these tests, uh, some of them have been, been proven to be highly reliable with people who have symptoms in the first five to seven days. And that's the only thing that they're authorized for, but people just can't seem to help themselves. And we've seen them used even more for asymptomatic people where they're not indicated and in fact misleading than for people with symptoms. So this is gonna be our next big challenge is um, you know, having to, I think, repeat every positive you know antibody test and then there's the other concern that i uh we don't have as much data on yet about false negatives so you know it's another nightmare you get your COVID test it's negative by the rapid test uh and, and probably you don't have symptoms uh and you get this test and then you're wandering around with the assumption that you're good when in fact you have COVID, and so this is gonna be our biggest testing challenge I predict in the next six to eight weeks. And as you know, uh, the, the device I mentioned, the Binax uh, really kind of flooding the market. Now, and I do not have the final data on the Binax uh, 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 today. And uh, the Matt is still working on that. The lab folks are working hard on it and we'll get that out when we get the data. Uh, Brandon, that'll teach you to actually ask that question, uh, Dr. Scrace, and I feel like I could get uh, maybe an honorary degree now in some of the molecular bi biology aspects of this pandemic. But look, 
this is where the White House should not be flooding the market based on a deal to get instruments and testing supplies because the White House made a commitment in advance of their science team. We're gonna test every kid who's gonna go back to school. We're gonna test every educator. We're gonna open up nursing homes to visitation because we're desperate for that. And, and uh, I'm desperate for that. I'm desperate for that. Why wouldn't you be? Our loved ones, and it's true, I've said that's true, I've never hidden from that. No governor that I'm aware of, aware of has hidden from the fact that isolation is great for managing the virus important for us to do, there are other consequences to that. That's why trying to learn to live with this virus so that we can have some predictable risks so that we can deal with some of those isolation factors, not the least of which uh, is about nursing home visitation and supporting our loved ones. So the White House says, everybody it's safe, you can go back and to prove that we're gonna give everybody a test. So then they identify in the marketplace where you've got a lot of testing uh, instruments and supplies but they don't work in this context and they have real accuracy problems. They flood states with them. It's a false sense of security and that's not how you make decisions about testing. You have a Matt, you have Dr. Grace, you have Dr. Fauci, they make those decisions. Then they should have used the Defense Production Act to manufacture enough of those supplies so that states would have everything that they need. They did it completely backwards. Um, and it's really shameful and it's creating huge problems. We're gonna do due diligence and we're gonna use what we can where we should. So we're trying to do an all of the above approach, something else we're well known for, but this is fraught with potential serious problems, particularly now with our case numbers. I need to know who is positive, where you are, and I need to quickly get you isolated so that we stop the transmission of the virus but it's a good question. All these are good questions. It's a tough topic. Next question, Nora. Thank you, Governor and Dr. Scrace. Next, we'll go to Patrick Hayes with KOB. Patrick, you are unmuted. Go right ahead. Thank you, Nora, Governor, Secretary. I uh, was wondering, you know, that some of the reports this week show that we have the highest rate of spread and some of the increase in cases this week here in Albuquerque, at least, have been at the homeless shelter and the jail. Are these places doing enough to prevent the spread? Um, I think MDC uh, could have done a much better job. You know, I want to be fair. I, I would always be fair. I apologize for even starting that sentence in that way. Yeah, the, when we have a corrections protocol, we know who's coming uh, and we are ready for that transfer. We can do all the testing. You know, we've got stability in the population. We've got places to move folks. And in fact, you know, we, we are only at 76 and that's a good thing and a required legal issue in our corrections um, uh, facilities. We're at 76% of population capacity. In a jail, you don't know how many people you're gonna get every day uh, and you don't have the same luxury in terms of testing and getting it all done and dealing with symptom screening. So I wanna be fair that it's a different environment. However, uh, they could have done more with really paying attention to symptomatic populations coming in. I don't know that they were able to manage some of the staffing protocols in the way that we believe you should and have provided guidance 
uh, and, and required efforts act. And again, you immediately have to figure out a way to isolate those folks who are infected. You can't just release individuals uh, that are required to be in jail, but you also have to know what options you have. And, and again, once it's in, it's uncontrollable. So both. I want to be fair about the circumstances under which they have to operate, which means we can't have nearly as high a positivity rate. And two, we can all do better. MDC could have done better. And we're working with the, the uh, uh, local government right now to improve their ability to manage COVID and to prevent it. The same thing with the homeless shelter. Uh, and as you know, we're moving folks into other areas so that we can mitigate spread and then realign ourselves with better COVID safe practices with our local government partners. Dr. Scrace. Particular and correctional facilities are a real challenge. It's a congregate setting, people in closer quarters. Uh, early data, I remember this was April, May, uh, in homeless shelters on the West Coast and East Coast, showing COVID positivity rates of 45 to 80% in the people who are staying there and 30 to 50% approximate numbers in staff. And so it's a real challenge. Uh, Secretary Blaylock and uh, working with the National Guard uh, reached out over the last weekend. We did fill up our initial uh, sheltering site that we have. We've op we've uh, uh, arranged for two additional sites that are filling up and trying to isolate people, trying to isolate families from each other. But it's a, it's a tremendous challenge because those environments are indoors and people don't always wear their masks for a variety of reasons, some of which are not their fault. And uh, you know, sometimes the air circulation is not ideal, although I'm not speaking in particular to the facilities we're talking about today. So it's just a really tough issue. And uh, in most places they have that have had these outbreaks, they've seen well over 50% of uh, the residents uh, infected. And, and one last thing, and I know that folks want us to go faster, but the states, we, we, we should be required, we should be expected. This is what public servants do, these are our jobs. But again, all this work, the National Guard, our sheltering sites, children, youth, and families, the Environment Department, the Human Services Department, everyone in the governor's office, there is a limitation. And so the more cases we have, the less effective we are at partnering and supporting everyone else, private and public sector, to manage COVID because it's too much all at once. I just really wanna highlight that that there is a limitation and we are at it. So this has to, this has to turn over immediately. Thank Next you, question. Governor and Dr. Scrace. Next, we'll go to Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Julia, should be unmuted now. Let's see. There we go, go right ahead. Thank you, Nora. Thanks, Governor. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. I had two questions. Um, the first relates to restaurants. The case epidemiology report this week indicated that um, folks who tested positive and reported activities going to restaurants and bars um, had actually outpaced um, other types of gatherings, I think for the first time um, since July, maybe. And Governor, as you shared, um, the week by week um, increase of rapid response responses at restaurants is up 120%. My question is, is there, are contact tracers, is the state in any way connecting dots between those two 
data points. In other words, if someone reports, oh yes, I went to this restaurant, is there cross-referencing with the actual restaurant and is it known? These people probably caught this at this restaurant where we've had um, these cases among employees or is it more kind of a general extrapolation about what's happening. And my second question uh, relates to testing. The Wall Street Journal this week reported um, labor shortages and labor burnouts at, um, among lab techs across the, uh, the country due to the millions of tests being processed, including uh, Tricor was uh, quoted in that story. And I wondered if that was something the state was encountering at the scientific laboratory or if there was anticipation this might um, in general hinder testing going forward. Thanks so much. Yeah, Julie, you're, you're awesome. I'm gonna do the, la the latter question first. Yes, um, uh, early in the pandemic, uh, our state lab was incredibly stretched and we worked hard to staff up some of those technicians. Uh, and uh, we actually, uh, you might remember that we were working at all of these redundant backup uh, laboratories uh, efforts, right? We had a laboratory in Colorado. None of that worked as efficiently as we wanted it to. And we still have all of those redundant backup systems, but now they're stretched to your point. It, this, this pandemic has an epidemic issue in the United States. We don't have enough folks. They are burned out. They, they are running 24 hour cycles at full capacity. There aren't enough people to keep replacing people. Uh, and that's the other issue about this pandemic. I tried to really focus on if we want economic success, I know that's not the focus of your question. You can't keep closing businesses for a day or a couple of days or two weeks. We can't do it. And you have to have employees who can actually go to work because they're not infected. Uh, that's stopping. And we're exhausted as a society. The lab techs, the, the, the molecular biologists, the folks who keep the instruments running, the people who are collecting the samples, who haven't had days off, my public health docs and nurses and regional directors, they haven't had a day off since March. Since March, there aren't enough people to do it. Uh, and, and I'm telling them it's another year. And yes, we're trying to hire, we're, we're looking, we've been leveraging. Uh, Dr. Scrace will tell you every state employee is doing something related to COVID. So your old job might have been um, uh, archiving. Your new job is checking in and calling and doing data work for the pandemic, right? Everyone is doing pandemic work. We're at our bandwidth. So yes, I worry about it all of the time. It has impacted our ability sometimes to run all the samples in a 24-hour time frame. Uh, I think you might have asked that question once before, and I said yes. You know, we do it in 24 hours, but there have been some times, either supply chain or personnel chain, where we couldn't do it. It is a growing concern, and it gets harder the more tests they're running a day. So, uh, and the more flu cases we get and other respiratory issues they're gonna have to run, the more dangerous and difficult this is gonna become to manage. So it is a problem and I'm very concerned about it. Um, and then the, the other question that you asked is about the data points. It's more in the contact tracing. We sometimes can you know, pinpoint uh, exactly a location or you know, the ground zero of an infection. 
largely that doesn't occur. It's more generalized about knowing that uh, it, this restaurants in general, this area in general, it is actually very hard for me to be able, even with effective contact tracing, to tell you everyone caught COVID here. And then they took it here, 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 and here. And that is much more difficult to do because people do multiple things while they were infected. And I can't tell you where it started. Um, and it's really hard to connect those dots. So it's more general about where I know people were, how often they were there, uh, and during their infected period, how likely and how many people were likely there at the same time. I will tell you who does the best contact tracing, the media. Because, uh, and I mean that as a compliment. I know it sounded like I wasn't being complimentary, but I really am. So when, when we see that, you know, May, a, May, a wedding in Maine did X, when someone comes forward and says, I got COVID, and then someone from the press can reach out and talk to them and ask if they'll tell their story, then you can begin to put those together. Uh, and it has really been incredible to see that. Uh, we'd have to have more robust ways of doing contact tracing. And we do need to figure out ways to use more of the Google, Google apps and other things. But again, we need New Mexicans, white and Americans to embrace those strategies and to use them. Otherwise, it's very hard to actually do the pinpointing that you um, uh, asked about. Uh, so it's rare, it's more generalized. A couple quick additions, Governor. I should also mention the governor has done some effective contact <laughs> tracing herself. I have, uh, in fact, I have. She has. Um, uh, Julia, the key difference here, you know, when we think of tracking down restaurants, you know, with through public health, it's almost always through a foodborne illness like salmonella, botulism, E. coli, you know, we call people up, where have you eaten? Now tell me everywhere you've eaten. Uh, botulism is usually fatal, so we can't call those people up, but the other infections, we can, where have you eaten? And most people haven't eaten at 30 different restaurants in the past, 14 days. But when we call up people who have a, a coronavirus infection, you know, it's where have you been in the past 14 days? And, you know, a lot of people have been to restaurants. Doesn't mean they got the infection there. Uh, we do know of super spreader events. There's a notorious one in China of a family who all had COVID and were symptomatic sitting in front of an air conditioner. And that, uh, that was a sort of a super spreader event. Governor's mentioned weddings, also a source as well. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, people had 30 contacts when you call them. And then when we all hunkered down, it was more like one or five. And now we're back up to 30 again, where I've asked them to sort of trend that and see if we can learn anything there. And I just wanted to end on this one with a, a shout out to our laboratory leaders, Dr. Edwards at the State Lab, Dr. Crossy and Culbreeze um, at uh, Tricor. They've just done an amazing job responding yeah and dramatically, dramatically increasing, you know, the, their ability to test for uh, COVID. Uh, it's been uh, unbelievable. And I think uh, at least, I know times are harder today and the past couple of weeks, cases are going up, but they're still at the forefront of helping us manage this. They are, you know, uh, Dr. Edwards has to respond when I call, state employee. Uh, Dr. Crossy does not. Uh, private sector. Uh, I, I have called both uh, on numerous occasions, and I've talked to Dr. Crossy at all hours of the day and night. Uh, it, it, I can't say enough about our private sector partners and um, the public dedication 
to doing everything we can to be reliable partners, to bring you facts and information, and to do everything we can to keep New Mexicans safe. And we couldn't do it without all those state employees and leaders, and we certainly couldn't do it without our private sector partners. And I would say that's a place where New Mexico is still leading. Uh, our private sector partners lean in every single day, repeatedly. No one has said no, no one. Thank you, Governor and Dr. Grace. Next, I'll go to Morgan Lee with the AP. Morgan, you should be unmuted. Uh, hello, Governor, Dr. Grace. Um, with, given these current trends, um, I wonder if you could comment on what the implications are for um, the voting process, for um, uh, voting convenience centers that are about to open, um, if you're taking any special measures, uh, they are giving new direction to county clerks and secretary of state's office. And, uh, especially now that, um, uh, people have to register, they can't do it online anymore. I, I think I have that correct. Um, thank you. Uh, Morgan, uh, we haven't thought about additional measures because it's a pretty strict, uh, set of COVID safe practices that we practiced in the primary successfully. But I will tell you this, uh, if we need to think about stronger measures, not stricter in the context of not letting people vote, right? We, we want people to be able to exercise their voting rights. Uh, we are still, uh, you know, uh, reminding people about absentee ballots. But if you're going to go to your polling uh, place and your convenient uh, locations that are now opening up, it's not just uh, the clerk's offices, uh, that six feet apart, you must have a mask on. Uh, they are minimizing surfaces that you touch and contact. And so uh, all of that will remain. But here's an issue that I want to just tie back to some another question I've answered. We have some clerk's offices around the state, particularly in some of the rural areas, who have staff out because of COVID, right? They're close contact, so they're isolating or they're infected. So now you're losing staff during a critical time in their work. Uh, and another example, we had a pharmacist, only pharmacist in entire county who was unavailable because of COVID. Uh, so it, it, this has dire consequences for just doing our routine work. Uh, but I think it's, uh, there's a possibility uh, that we may have to talk about what we could do to uh, further protect largely retirees who have to be at these polling locations. Yeah. Um, but we feel pretty good about the COVID safe practices that we've identified. They are intended to keep everyone there safe and you know, please keep requesting your uh, absentee ballots until the deadline. Dr. Scrace? Yeah, just really quickly, I think they're, you know, like this is illustrative of so many things that have a low risk and kind of medium or high risk option. Lowest risk is mail-in ballots, but I'm hopeful that most high risk people for COVID are mailing their ballots in. You know, more risk is going to the polling place in person, wear your mask, stay six feet apart. Uh, even if other people aren't following the rules, follow the rules yourself. And then of course, in my opinion anyway, the highest risk is not voting at all. Thank you, Governor and Dr. Grace. Next, I'll go to Chris McKee with CareQE. Chris, you are unmuted should be oh. 
how about now? I think I'm yeah, here. Perfect. Okay, cool. Go right ahead. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, I had a question related to the position of the enforcement employees and their role enforcing the health order. This reminds me a lot of something that the city of Albuquerque had uh, ventured out to do over the last several months. And from what I gathered from sort of what the city of Albuquerque's folks did with security guards, just enforcement employees, I can sort of say they are, was they issued a lot of warnings. Um, I know you had mentioned, um, Governor Lujan Grisham, about just how local police have been sort of reluctant to take part in the enforcement action. Um, first kind of question is, is it time to start really cracking down, writing those tickets instead of just warning folks? But along those lines as well as with these state enforcement employees, you know, how do you sort of expect them to do much better when they're sort of in a, a lesser capacity sometimes seen as than a, a uniformed police officer, right, without a, a badge or a uniform? Um, do you expect those enforcement employees for the state to go up to people on the street without a mask maybe? Or when they see a group of people who aren't distancing and sort of say, hey, look, I'm a state enforcement employee with such and such department. I'm going to write you the civil sort of penalty. You know, what do you kind of expect from those employees? And, and, and then I guess the last part of this, the people on the ground who may not see that badge, may not see that uniform, may be reluctant to say hand over information on their uh, license or, or identify themselves. Um, I guess, yeah, overall, a lot of questions I have just about the sort of success of this enforcement effort. Thank you. I, I don't think any of those uh, uh, experiences and questions, and if there were other options, uh, we would use those. We're going to use every effective for the individual not wearing a mask because you're right they may not give you any information we aren't going to get in an altercation there will be no uh, if you will uh, citizens arrest none of that is occurring you know we're not looking at creating more tension although no one likes a citation so largely the uh, state employees are going to have to absolutely and they're willing because they're they're living through these burdens and are fearful about where our state is headed. And people want accountability. Uh, I, I can tell you that a lot of New Mexicans are calling and writing to us saying, I started with that on the front end of our conversation today. Well, I'm doing everything right, but nothing happens to everybody who isn't doing everything right. That's a fair criticism. So largely, you know, families, organizations, and I, and I, I actually hate to, to give people the notion that we're going to be driving up and down um, neighborhoods. Of course we're not. First of all, it would be ineffective uh, we respond to when someone says, this is occurring, can you go take a look and do something about it? Largely organizations, businesses, uh, that's the place where uh, this team of state workers, public servants are gonna be the most effective and to help uh, um, the environment department with the work that they're engaged in. They can't replace OSHA, that requires very specific training. So they can't do citations there. I hope that your question does this today. Local law enforcement has not done enough. And that is not to say that we haven't had some, very few, as you know, individual citations for not wearing masks uh, and citations for businesses that are out of compliance. Um, and there have been mostly warnings, although we've, those warnings have gotten operations to stop. So I, I appreciate that. That is the right end result. 
but I'm going to need officers to help us with the individual mandates. And I need New Mexicans to just do better so I don't have to do it. None of this will be easy to execute. None of it will be as perfected as I would like it to be. But doing nothing is as unacceptable here because far too many individuals have basically taken for granted nothing will happen to you and don't believe that they're the cause of a super spread event. Um, you know, our national laboratories who were very strict about their protocols uh, early on volunteered to follow every one of our COVID safe practices and public health order requirements, even when federal employees, that's not all their employees, but federal employees were exempt. And now they've relaxed a little and their employees are beginning to do things that are clearly prohibited as individuals and they're seeing their cases spread and increase. And these are essential workers. I mean, it's a huge problem. So um, I'd love to be able to tell you that I am confident that everything uh, you pointed out, we can address productively. We're gonna do our very best because doing nothing is untenable. So don't expect public workers just roaming around uh, the, the streets of New Mexico, uh, trying to get information and issue a citation to a bypass or uh, an individual walking from one place to another. Uh, expect that we will continue to ask and put real pressure on law enforcement to do what they're required to do, which is to enforce these orders, just like they would a seatbelt law. And uh, expect my new team, my additional team, to really go after uh, the bad actors uh, out there who have been consistently violating our public health orders and adding to the problem and the crisis that we are attending to today. Thank you, Governor. Next, we'll go to Algernon Damasa with the Las Cruces Sun News. Algernon, you should be unmuted. Yes, go right ahead. Thank you, Governor and Dr. Scrace. Um, I'd like to talk about uh, contingency planning for hospital strain. Uh, here in Dona Ana County, we're part of a sort of nine county region and um, the numbers as of today indicate that ICU capacity is about, well, it looks uh, roughly half um, while there's still uh, um, pretty good availability of ventilators if needed. and. But as these numbers increase, we are, of course, near Texas, we're near El Paso County, and other parts of the hospital system in New Mexico are reporting that they're full or over full. And our neighboring states are not in an enviable position either. So what um, can you talk a little bit about what sort of interstate contingency planning is taking place in the event that this um, increase continues to uh, strain and perhaps even overwhelm our hospital system. Thanks. Uh, this is a very important uh, question and there is not an easy ready answer. When we were seeing uh, the uncontrollable spread and really dangerous set of circumstances unfold before us, right, in Texas and in New York and in California and Washington State as examples, 
uh, other states weren't in that same situation. So uh, neighboring states, we were supporting each other and we actually would talk about who's in the hospital here from Arizona, how many New Mexicans are in a hospital um, uh, in Colorado, how do you count those for hospitalizations, et cetera. We always have agreements that, and it's required uh, for the country that, right, hospitals can't deny access to the hospital for anyone, whether even you are even from uh, your traveler or a citizen, doesn't matter. If you need hospital care, you're required to get it wherever you are. But if there are no beds, that creates real issues. And so we've always had this understanding that particularly border states, Colorado, that uh, we, would, we would work together. But, uh, and while Colorado, good for them, their positivity rate is lower than ours. Uh, they're having issues of their own. So this becomes even more challenging. So right now, we've not needed a very specific interagency or interstate, I'm sorry, agreement about what we would do in overflow. Each state has created field hospital capacities as the number one measure to mitigate what happens for overflow. And we did the same, as you know, with Loveless and a couple other you know, early spots that we identified early in the pandemic in the Northwest region of the state. And then we realized that it was far better to take critically ill uh, patients and get them into Albuquerque where you've got a broader group of specialists because this is an urban area. So there was never any criticism of their hospitals there, but just rather getting to the right uh, clinician and practitioner, right environment. But as Albuquerque is seeing these huge case increases and Albuquerque hospitals are filling up, they're not in a position to help Doniana County. And you're right, this is gonna become a, an issue. Um, I think if this doesn't get curbed around the country pretty quickly, we're gonna to have to think about those kinds of agreements and arrangements. And, you know, states do wanna help each other. I can tell you that there's, and that is not a partisan issue. If I call uh, a governor, irrespective of their political affiliation, uh, anywhere in the country, uh, they wanna step up. That's just how we are. And we should behave that way. Uh, but it's gonna get increasingly challenging for us to do so. And again, uh, then you gotta figure out travel ambulance, uh, 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 air ambulance, it, it becomes very complicated. So right now, we aren't quite there. Same rules would apply if you're in El Paso, as an example, and you live in Las Cruces, and their hospital was full and you needed an immediate attention, and particularly if it was COVID, you'd go to their field hospital, potentially, or you'd come to Las Cruces. They would make the most uh, accurate, effective healthcare decision about your health and safety right there and make that decision. They wouldn't deny you. And that's exactly what we would do here. So let's hope the rest of the country is doing what we're doing and trying to get this under control in a much more rapid fashion. Um, but we don't have a specific agreement more than the regular federal requirements about hospitalizations that everybody adheres to across the country. Dr. Grace, do you have anything else? Dr. Grace, you're yeah. muted. Yeah. Uh an additional update on the mat, uh, the operations team's been meeting for the duration of the pandemic. The hub and spoke system that we set up continues to meet the, uh, the hub hospitals are spread around the state. You can see a description of all of them on the gating criteria website. If you click on ICU capacity, we do have three categories of ICU beds baseline, which we're really getting very, very close to now. Then there's contingency. We can a uh, baseline, uh, ICU beds are 
beds that are normally able to be staffed in an operation. There's 290 of those in our hospitals and they represent well over 90% of the total ICU beds in the state. They can expand that by I think 149 to get to 439 contingency beds. And they are now pulling out those plans that they wrote up uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and looking them over and refining them and beginning to do the work to do that. And then there's a crisis level 623 ICU beds where they expand by a, a 184. But once we go over baseline, then we go, then we have to start discontinuing regular hospital services for different groups like pediatric ICU, for example, that converted into a regular ICU or shut down an operating room suite to convert it into an ICU. And so the governor's point about the fact that uh, this is not just for COVID patients, this is about hospital capacity for every New Mexican becomes more and more uh, of a, a pain point for all of us as cases grow. And we always talk about folks in, uh, Dr. Grace reminds me about this. Uh, we, we, and, you know, we, 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 we wishing that we won't have a single serious accident in the state of New Mexico isn't going to make that true that we're not going to have one. We will. Uh, and wishing that our folks who are getting cancer treatment today aren't going to need hospital care isn't going to make it true. And hoping that we don't get influenza and pneumonia that require right hospitalization and wanting that to not to just go away entirely isn't going to make that happen either. There are a lot of mamas who are depending on us so that they can safely deliver their babies in a hospital room that isn't converted, isn't in the hall. I mean, all the things that are that we have to do. And so when we think about COVID, I need us to think broader, right, than we have been. Uh, because we have an obligation to those families. These services are supposed to be available for them too. In this pandemic, we have to work harder to protect those families in the same way we're all working hard to protect people from getting COVID, both. And there's plenty of those families who are, I'm sure, worried about whether or not in two or three months, if that's where they are, are they gonna be able to deliver at the hospital of their choice um, their baby? And I have no way to answer that today. If the numbers stay where they are, I can say highly unlikely in the environment that you were expecting. And if we crush it, highly likely. Depends on how we do. And that starts right now. Nora, next question. Thank you, Governor and Dr. Grace. This will be our last question as we wrap things up today. We'll go to Jeffrey Plant from the Silver City Daily Press. And Jeffrey, if you want to go ahead and accept that, there you go. Jeffrey, go right ahead. Uh, thank you, Nora. Governor, I have a question about public meetings. Uh, can you clarify how the public health order impacts meetings that are subject to the Open Meetings Act? Uh, for example, are all public meetings required to include a remote participation component? Does the five-person limit apply to public meetings? And also, would you comment on the uh, threats that were levied against elected officials and uh, the intimidation of voters last night by a group who hacked into an online meeting of the Grant County Democratic Party? Uh, I'd love to. I, I know very little about that until right now, uh, and so I'm horrified. Um, I've seen it uh, occur around the country. I did hear about uh, what I thought was more of a candidate's um, forum where racial slurs and inappropriate activity occurred, and I'm not sure I realized it was uh, Grant County. 
So thank you for making sure I'm clear about what is occurring. Um, so first, open meetings. Uh, oh, the Open Meetings Act requirements uh, can't be waived in, in, uh, because of the pandemic. We can't change the way in which you participate in an open meeting, same way we did in the special session, right? We figure out a different virtual way in which for people to participate. So for the things that I participate in more routinely, because I'm the chair or the president of the organization by statute, Board of Finance, the State Investment Council, you know, we're doing all those meetings virtually and we allow and give people links so that they can participate in those open meetings. Uh, we will continue to do that. And that's how you deal with the 10 person before and now the five person limit because we're working really hard um, to do that. So we're gonna keep pushing organizations that are required to, to have an open meetings component. That's a very important protection for transparency in government and public participation, which we don't think should be set aside. And we believe there are COVID safe ways to do that. There have been some legislative meetings where they've worked on those small groups, 10 and under, and now five and under in person. So they've worked to accommodate that. And I would expect that the same needs to be true for city councilors and county commissioners, that they find ways to meet their regular meeting requirements and that you would vacillate who can be in person and who can't. One room, one group, one group, another room, another group, so that you can keep to that five. There are ways to meet those requirements without being COVID unsafe. Um, and that's what we're expecting to have happen. And if there's a special circumstance, we would have to work with our legal team to take that under advisement because uh, we don't want these to be one or the other. We think we can manage both under the public health order. Uh, and what I'm going to say about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, political issue that you just raised, uh, look, tensions are at an all-time high. I, I am speechless about what I'm seeing across this country, from what happened to Governor Whitmer, to the incredible threats that have been levied against me and my family personally, the threats against public health workers and doctors uh, who have asked uh, constituents and the Mexicans to wear masks, the altercation that occurred over a mask in a convenience store in uh, Las Cruces, an allegation today um, uh, in Cibola County about uh, an individual trying to infect other individuals and allegations that that's racially motivated. Uh, this is all untenable. It's hateful. This hateful rhetoric is dangerous, in many circumstances is unlawful, and we have to hold people accountable. There's no place for that in American uh, democracy and diplomacy and in any of our local elected efforts. I just don't understand it. And I, uh, I ask you to write about it, to ask people to come to their senses. You know, we always have disagreed about policy. That's that is productive. We should keep doing that. I've had many debates, not just with uh, you know, Republicans, but plenty of Democrats in my career. They should never devolve into hateful, unkind, threatening, all actionable, the threatening part, um, actions ever. They can be done in respectful ways so that we find ways to solve problems. Um, I'm horrified by this. Uh, and I'm gonna look into it immediately and make sure that the right authorities are engaged 
to uh, make sure that we're holding to the degree that we know who they are and can, those who did that accountable. Uh, we are better than this as a state. We just are. And I'm just really horrified. And I think that um, it's a good place to end by reminding New Mexicans, you know, we have uh, uh, less than 20, I think today's 19 days until the election. There are a lot of tensions out there. People are driving us. There are wild conspiracy theories. I know most of you are aware that, you know, people are saying that we're going to shut down voting. No, of course we're not. And don't believe any of that nonsense. It's nonsense. It's intended to get people to be angry and frustrated and push you to places uh, that typically you would not go and to promote and open the door, to give permission to hateful, threatening behavior, untenable, actionable. We will, we will do everything we can to hold you accountable and we can lead by example where you can remind people that this is respectful back the candidate of your choice do it in a covid safe way make sure that you get your ballot in mail it in drop it off at a ballot box vote for them him or her either party but do not engage in this behavior it's despicable and disgusting and in many circumstances, it is flat out unlawful and it's dangerous. You know, someone in this country will lose their lives over this kind of activity. And God forbid we would see that play out in our state. So let's end on a more positive note. We are better than this. We are a proud, multicultural, diverse, incredible state of people who love this state. The 505, I know I keep doing that, it's 575. Uh, Dr. Grace has got the Zia flag right behind him. I always have a Zia on. Uh, I am always proud of us. I am disturbed and dismayed and I'm afraid for us. Those are the right reactions to what's going on with COVID. I am not not proud of New Mexico. I never stopped believing in New Mexico and you shouldn't either. Let's not allow ourselves to be angry or hateful. Let's lift ourselves up. I ask you to take me up on this challenge. New Mexicans, stay home tomorrow if you can. Telecommute to work. Please stay home this weekend if you don't work this weekend. Let's give ourselves a little three or four day break. Do everything you can to slow it down. Let's show each other that the changes we're making are enough. Let's not put ourselves in a position where we have to be more extreme and more narrow in how we manage this virus. And let's show the rest of the country that we don't have to roll back in ways that other folks are looking at. Um, but we are right at that precipice. And I ask you to join me in continuing to showcase New Mexico's strength, resilience, and ability to manage and crush this virus and live through it for the next several long months and get over the finish line. And let's all get a gold medal for making it through the marathon. Thank you for spending time with us today. Um, go out there and beat this virus. We can do it.